As the longest-running magazine in the world, The Spectator believes that journalism must be witty and insightful and free from the constant threat of cancellation. It isn't right-wing or left-wing. The Spectator believes in challenging, informing, and entertaining readers. Its mission since 1828 has been to convey intelligence, not ideology. The Spectator is more cocktail party, less political party. It believes that life is bigger than politics, which is why it covers art, culture, food, wine, travel, and life all around. Sign up today and you'll receive three free months of both the print and digital magazine, plus a free Spectator hat. Just use offer code BARPOD at checkout to redeem the special offer. Go to spectator.us slash special offer and use offer code BARPOD. If you do, you'll have access to an amazing roster of contributors like Christopher Buckley, PJ Work, Julie Bendel, Christopher Caldwell, Lionel Shriver, Douglas Murray, Toby Young, Slovod Zizak, that guy, <laughs> Roger Scruton, Rod Lytle, and Jesse Single? That's right. I have been newly anointed by the Queen of England herself as the media critic. So sign up today and you will get three months of The Spectator for free plus a free Spectator hat when you subscribe at spectator.us slash special offer. Use offer code BARPOD at checkout to redeem your offer. That is spectator.us slash subscribe offer code BARPOD. Katie, how's it going? Pretty good, Jesse. Just finished celebrating International Hummus Day. You? Same. Happy International Hummus Day to you. It was actually yesterday, but since we're recording this on Friday, yes, this is a happy belated International uh, Hummus Day. Speaking of which, I wanted to point you to a little tweet by our friends at Slack. Every year on Hummus Day, we'd like to share a fun little tidbit about Slack notifications. We realize now, this year, and specifically today, was not the right time to do that. <laughs> Thank you to our Slack HQ community, community for holding us accountable. So I'm, I'm lost. I assume it's offensive because of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict flaring up, but what was the thing they shared that people got mad at? Okay, so it turns out that... Slack has so Slack has these notifications and for people who don't know Slack is a messaging program that offices use. And so normally like if you get a notification there'll be some sort of ding and there's a way to change your notifications to it sounds like a British lady lady saying the word hummus although I think she says it incorrectly cuz like the correct pronunciation is a lot more like homos, right? Isn't it homo? Homo? <laughs> did, homo. You say, did you call me a homo? Yeah, I'm calling you a homo. That isn't it homo? Like homos, homos, homos. Homo might be like homos. I don't know. You're profiling me. I am profiling you, but uh, yeah. So I, I think she's mispronouncing the word in the first place. Anyway, so this has been. They've had this notification for a long time. Slack did not release any sort of broader statement on what was problematic about this notification, <laughs> um, but the theory, the working theory is that someone in the Slack community got offended for – there's two possible reasons here. One, they confused the word hummus with Hamas. <laughs> that would be the dumbest shit ever. Also, International International Hamas Day is until next week. <laughs> exactly. Two, the other working theory that I saw online – is that it reminded someone of Sabra Hummus, which is on the official BDS list because it's an Israeli company. There's also – there is – I know nothing about this. I hope no one has any follow-up questions because I'm not going to answer them. There is long-running tensions. Um, you know, This is minor in the context of everything else, but over sort of who Hummus belongs to, to, to what extent it's a Jewish food versus an Arab food. Of course, it's both. Of course, there's like – 
These are, in certain senses, contrived differences, but that might be part of it, too. It's a very politicized food. Right, which brings us to uh, the topic of the show today. This show is going to be all about the Israel-Palestinian conflict. Yes, we are going to be bringing in experts from across the spectrum, from far-right Israeli settlers to veterans of Hamas itself. And we think if we get everyone together under the blocked and reported uh, podcast umbrella, we could probably solve this thing in what? What do we have budgeted for this? Three hours, three and a half? You know, I think we could probably do it in under an hour. And in fact, I brought on uh, Jared Kushner to play the role of moderator for this episode. (laughs) That is a good idea. Uh, no, I'm really looking forward to this. And and this is part of a broader pivot in which Blocked and Reported is now a podcast about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And um, for the purposes of this podcast, you are going to be playing Palestine and I'm going to be playing Israel. And it's just going to be it's just going to be full LARPing, full LARPing. This is going to be some very hot role playing. Okay, so we will get to that in a bit. But first, a few other things to talk about. Yes, and those things are more uh, connected to internet drama, are they not? Indeed. Well, actually, no. The first one is actually we're going to talk about a real world issue, which is your family's ability to get gas. And my ability to get gas. I was a victim this week of the gas shortage. Um, So we're going to talk about that. And we're going to be talking about Liz Bruning Derangement Syndrome. All right, but first, what podcast is this? This is Blocked and Report. And I'm Katie Herzog. And I am Jesse Single, head of the PLO. All right. So did we talk about gas first? Yeah, let's do it. This is your, this is your game, Herzog. Uh, yeah, I'm an expert on the gas shortage uh, at this point as a victim of it. Okay. So as people might be aware by now, on May 7th, a group called Darkside, a hacking collective. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it, sounds, it sounds dark, doesn't it? Very apropos name. This group, which is believed to be in Russian, Russian in origin, not necessarily or at all affiliated with the Russian government, but Russian origin, um, hacked the colonial pipeline. The pipeline, colonial pipeline, carries 3 million barrels of fuel per day between Texas and New York. This includes gas fuel, diesel fuel, and jet fuel, and it accounts for almost half of the fuel on the East Coast. So this is a major, major pipeline. Um, Colonial Pipeline was subject to a ransomware attack. So what that means is there are different ways to do a ransomware attack. It could be through a phishing scheme where you send an employee an email, an email uh, the employee clicks on a link, and then all of a sudden the network uh, belongs to this hacking group. So what these ransomware groups do, or ransomware terrorists or whatever they are, ransomware criminals do, is they take over basically the online infrastructure of a company they hold and they hold it for ransom. So they encrypt it. You don't have access to your data. You don't have access to your network. And then until you pay them X amount of money, you're basically fucked. Yeah, and we we've been doing that for a while. Early on, before our Patreon cut on, that was our funding model. Yeah, yeah. So um, if you get any emails from Jesse, definitely click the links. Okay, so this particular group, Darkside, they it's sort of an interesting group. They have this um, sort of Robin Hood model where they say that they won't attack places like hospitals or schools or universities or nonprofits um, or even the government sector, and they only target according to their like blog, which is hosted on the dark web on some sort of Tor network. They only target those who can afford to pay. I think that's a little bit disingenuous because anytime a company is hacked, be it a for-profit or whatever – the ultimate, the price is going to be paid by the consumer. Ultimately, the cost will always be paid by the consumer. Like maybe a couple of like corporate heads will roll, but ultimately you and I are going to be the people who end up paying, you know, paying the ransom itself. Well, 
Maybe. I mean, I wouldn't like root for these guys, but they also, there's a chance they have like insurance or something, in which case sure. there might be no. But yeah, I totally get it. It's, it's dumb to present this as like we're the good guys. Right, right. Especially when you, when you see what happened. Um, it sort of made more sense if it was like an environmental group that was like, no more, no more fuel. We are taking down the fuel <laughs> infrastructure, which actually could happen. And I saw, um, do you know who Derek Jensen is? Yeah. He's like, well, there's a very famous clip that people are mad at. He's like an old school environmentalist type, right? Yeah, so he's an environmentalist. Um, he's published a bunch of books. Probably the most famous, I think, is Deep Green Resistance. And I, he's also he has become sort of better known in recent years because he's also gender critical, um, and this has caused this major breakup of of his own sort of environmental movements. Um, so Derek Jensen, I saw him. I saw I worked at a bookstore uh, when I was in college, and he came and did a reading. And this was in like 2003, maybe. And he, so this was, you know, almost 20 years ago. And he was talking about how, you know, burning down ski resorts and blowing up dams and cutting down billboards and stuff like that. That, according to him, like th- that was passe. That was old school. It was ineffective. The real, the real, uh, like effective way of targeting, um, targeting things like fuel companies in the future, he said, will be, will be cyber attacks. Anyway, this group, Dark Side, is not an environmental group. But I did think it was a very prescient, prescient prediction that he made. Um, okay. So anyway, back to what happened. On May 7th, they, uh, Darkseid attacks Colonial Pipeline. They demand, I believe, $5 million in ransom. This, did you hear about this when it immediately happened? I heard vaguely about it. It, it. it, this might be my fault for not reading deeply enough, but I didn't get the sense that there'd been like major real world consequences. Yeah, I hadn't it's weird like I hadn't even heard of the initial the initial cyber attack. I was on vacation for a few days and so that probably had something to do with it. But so here's here was my like personal experience of what happened. So I this week I was in Asheville, North Carolina where I'm from and where my family lives. And my dad and my wife and I were out and we were like driving through downtown Asheville back to their house and we passed this gas station. And there were like, there must have been like between 30 and 40 cars outside of this gas station. And we were like, what, what the fuck is going on? What is going on? We pass another gas station and there's nobody there. And we're like, all right, let's just get gas. Like maybe they had like tamales on sale at that other gas station. What is going on? The other gas station, totally the reason nobody was there was because it was closed. The one across the street also closed. And then my dad realizes, oh, there was a hack. Or he didn't say hack. He said, oh, this is probably because of the pipeline attack. And I was like, what are you talking about? What, like, was there like, my first thought was like, yeah, maybe this is like environmentalists or Antifa or some group that did a physical attack on a pipeline. But no, it was this ransomware attack. And so what it turns out, it was such a bizarre experience because it was like, we left the house and everything was normal. And then when we came back, it was like this weird apocalyptic moment. And so, you know, turn on the news, try to figure out what's going on. And we couldn't really find any news about this. Like there was a like WLOS, the local the local station had a had a report. But for the most part, there was like clearly something was going on locally and I just couldn't find any information on it. So we went home and we had plans the next day we were going to drive to go see some friends like an hour away immediately like canceled those plans because there's no gas in the car. We weren't going to be able to get there. My mom had been getting texts from, you know, all of her friends were all freaking out, sending each other pictures of these lines outside of gas stations or gas stations with the pumps closed. Um, so this had, you know, this was like filtering in through, through, um, through word of mouth more than it was through the news itself. 
So it turned out that right before this, Roy Cooper, the governor of North Carolina, had signed an executive order declaring a state of emergency about this. So this just did a couple of things. It temporarily suspended um, like fuel regulations to try to get greater fuel supply to the state. So I'm not sure how word spread, if it spread just like word to mouth or if it was people driving down the street like we were and seeing gas stations close and seeing lines of cars and, and freaking out and panicking and trying to go get gas, or if it was like coming through the news, even though there weren't there that many news reports about this, but somehow people had gotten the message that they needed to stock up on gas now. And so by the time, like literally we were gone for two hours, by the time we got home, it was like everything was normal. By the time we got home, you could not fucking get gas anywhere in town. It was really crazy. So uh, we go to bed. The next day, we wake up, and I start trying to find stories about this, trying to find out what was going on in the news. And I started searching national news sites. And there was shockingly little information. Like, there had been reports on the hack – and there had been reports from a couple of days before about potential, you know, potential price hikes, but there was very, very little on these gas lines and these gas shortages. And it had already, like, it had already impacted our lives because we had, you know, I had like three days left on this trip and we ended up rebooking our flights and coming home two days early, which was probably overkill. But my concern was that if this, if this, you know, the downstream effects of this, First of all, the, the pipeline also transported jet fuel. Um, nobody's going to be, you know, panic buying jet fuel. But if people can't, g- couldn't get to work, um, if air traffic controllers or pilots or airline employees couldn't get to work, this could, my concern was we were going to get stuck in North Carolina for weeks. So we ended up actually. Katie, if you're going to travel yeah. abroad to North Carolina, you can't expect <laughs> domestic news to cover a foreign crisis, to be fair. Right, exactly. So uh, I start calling local gas stations and I called at least 10 gas stations where my parents live and around Asheville looking for anyone who had gas. Nobody had gas. Um, one woman laughed at me and said, we might have it in five days. And I'm also listening to the radio and I'm listening to the local NPR station. And on the NPR, like local NPR update, I hear it at the top of the hour where they have the news, the, like breaking news every top of every hour. And the like the local host of the NPR station doesn't mention that there's a fucking gas shortage in Asheville. Instead, she says that gas prices have gone up six, six cents overnight, but no mention of the fact that you cannot get gas in this town. It was so bizarre. And so I was like listening to this, Googling this shit, trying to fucking find some gas in Asheville so my parents could fill up their cars. And I went downstairs and talked to my dad. He heard the same thing. Um, and he was also mystified. Why isn't the local news covering this? Why isn't the national news covering this? So he switched over to, to the local like Fox News station. They were covering it. And in fact, they had some segment apparently about how to uh, siphon gas from your neighbor's car, which they <laughs> refer to as an Arkansas credit card. Um, so, so that in the first place, that was it was very bizarre to be like, okay, we're in a ma- like major crisis mode here, and you cannot get any information about this. And this changed. Like I tweeted about it, and so this 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 tweet got some traction. So we were listening to the, we were listening to like the, you know, the local Fox station trying to hear their perspective on this. It switches over to the Glenn Beck show and I'm like halfway listening to it, not really like sitting around with my family and my wife. And all of a sudden I hear Glenn Beck refer to verified checkmark Katie Herzog. So this is the first time I've ever listened to Glenn Beck in my life. This is probably the first time I've ever listened to conservative radio with my family in my life. And that's how they found out I'm a verified blue checkmark. The whole thing was very humiliating. Anyway, so, so. I tweeted about this, and the response was from conservatives 
was that, you know, this is a conspiracy. The reason that you're not hearing about this on left news and mainstream news is that this is an effort to protect Joe Biden. Effort to protect Joe. I don't that just strikes me as too conspiratorial to be honest. I agree. I totally agree. I do think that if uh if there was a conspiracy, the conspiracy wouldn't have been to protect the administration. It would be to try not to foment panic. Um and it and that gets into this sort of weird sort of muddy, you know, muddy ethics of journalism where it's like, yeah, this the fuel supply, the fuel shortage was probably caused more by the panic buying than by disruptions to the pipeline itself. Um, and so the media reporting on this is naturally going to cause more panic buying, which is going to exacerbate the problem. Still, I don't think it's the media's job to protect people. Um, I think it's the media's job to report on what's happening. So I don't know. What do you think about that? Like, do you think in a case like this where it's like, you're a reporter, if you report on this thing, you know it's going to cause panic buying, which is going to make the crisis work. Like, what's your obligation there? Uh, no, I mean, if there's a shortage, you have to report a shortage. I don't think journalists should try to – I could see some exceptions to that. Like, for instance, with um, some guidelines with how to report on suicides sure. where we think contagion is a real possibility. I just think in a situation like this, that it's such important pressing news that people – you got to give people the right to to know and to process it however they see fit. That's how I feel about it too. In terms of the Biden stuff, I I do think there probably would have been uh, a different response from the national media if Trump had been in office because you can blame uh, you can blame this on the executive, and so of course conservatives are going to blame this on the even though this was a you know it was a private sector issue. Um, and Biden, the, the initial response from the Biden administration was kind of bad. Like during a press conference, someone asked. If uh, if the Biden administration thought that that uh, a colonial pipeline should pay this pay this ransom money, and the response from the spokesperson was that's a private sector issue, which does feel a little bit like okay, it's a private sector issue that is now impacting um, a massive region of of yeah. Americans. Like you actually <laughs> do have someone like you have an obligation to get involved in this. And and since then things have changed a bit. Like I looked at the I, I use that app Ground News, which is an advertiser of our podcast, but this is not an advertisement. But using the app, you can tell um, which way a, a given story is skewing if it's being covered by more the right or the left. And in the beginning, this was definitely be- being covered way more by the right. That's changed a bit. It's balanced out. It's balanced out. So it's like more in the center and more on the left as well. Um, but yeah, it, initially, there was a lot of conspiratorial thinking about like, oh, this is an effort to protect the Biden administration. I, I just like oftentimes these conspiracies, it, it presupposes that the media has uh, it like coordinates with with each other, and I just don't think that's true. It's like it's not true no. from my experience. It just doesn't make sense in terms of sort of the competitiveness of media. Um, I think most reporters are care a hell of a lot more about breaking stories and their own careers and their own egos than they do the president of the United States. I, it's um, I mean, it's complicated. It's, it's usually not a conspiracy. The closest there is to like coordination is Twitter. Quitty, quickly setting the tone for like how you're supposed to respond to a given thing. I do think journalists are influenced by that because they don't want people mad at them on Twitter. But but that's a much sort of – it's a shitty process, but it's more organic than like 
right. people getting together to decide to suppress the real news or right. whatever. Right. Right. Yeah. And there are stories like the, the the Hunter Biden story in the New York Post, which does seem more conspiratorial to me, but that was really more about about Twitter and Facebook than it was the media itself. Um, so, and the other thing is that you know this was happening in uh, a, a small town in North Carolina. It, it spread. This this really seemed to start in Western North Carolina. It spread all over the state and now has impacted states up and down the eastern seaboard. Um, and it's major impacts. Like there's still no gas in Asheville. My parents have now gone four days essentially with like not being able to really leave home because there's no gas, um, you know, and they're fine. They like live close to town. They can take their e-bikes down to the grocery store or whatever, but not everybody is in that position. And they're also retired. Your parents have, your parents have e-bikes? Yeah. Everybody has e-bikes. You don't have an e-bike? No, I, um, uh, yeah, I'm, well, I don't want to get into it, but someone close to me is very enthusiastic about like riding e-bikes now that they're, uh, I think, rentable in New York. And I remain convinced they're dangerous because I'm basically like a Jewish mother. Well, the last time I was in North Carolina in October, I got there and my mom and I took the e-bikes out. Uh, and so 10 minutes later, she had a broken wrist um, and had to have Ooh, surgery. This was literally – I got. it was an hour after I got there. I have an e-bike. My wife has an e-bike. If you live in a place – I wouldn't I, – like New York, I don't think you need them. But if you live in a, in a place with big hills and you're and – you're kind of lazy and not that physically fit. They're fucking awesome. Anyway, that's it. if anybody if any e-bike companies want to sponsor us, we're open. Um, okay, so so things have changed. This is now being covered by by the mainstream news much more than it was in the initial hours after after the shortages, which makes sense because now the shortages have gone beyond you know the borders of North Carolina and South Carolina. That's another thing. I think that so much of the national media is is headed in DC and New York and you know places on the West Coast. There's just not that many national reporters like living in these you know rural towns in North Carolina yeah. who are impacted by this. So they don't see it. It's not in their news feeds. They don't see the fucking gas lines. But there were some like very egregious examples of bad bad reporting. Let me read you this headline from the New York Times on May 11th. Colonial Pipeline, this is a tweet. Colonial Pipeline, a vital U.S. fuel artery that was shut down by a cyber attack, said it hoped to restore most operations by the end of the week. Since the shutdown, there have been no long lines or major price hikes for gas. (laughs) I saw this after I drove by a Sam's Club. The one place in Asheville at the time where you could get gas was the Sam's Club because you have to be a member to, you know, get gas there. And the traffic went through the parking lot, down the road, and was out on the highway where the it was like you couldn't even get to the exit. I mean, just hundreds of cars lined up for traffic, right? And that's at the, the very few gas stations where you could still get supplies, right? So it's just like, yeah, what are you insane. talking about? Like, what are you talking about? Like, fucking go on Facebook where people like are posting photos of of sh- this shit in West Virginia and Alabama and what, like even if you don't live here call somebody who lives in these towns and ask them if they can get yeah, gas even like go to get ga- there's an app called Gas Buddy which now everybody knows about look on the app you can see there's no fucking gas and so just this like egregiously bad reporting they rightfully got ratioed for this here's another one from May 12th this is a headline of courts from courts the US does not have a gas shortage <laughs> It's like the reporter is doing this like mental parkour where he's only defining shortage by supply. So the pipeline, the the pipeline hack does not seem to have vastly impacted um, like the 
they shut down the pipeline, right? It doesn't seem to have impacted supplies like from the beginning of the supply chain. The issue was the panic buying. But it doesn't matter if it's panic buying or if it's the pipeline shutdown or if it's a natural disaster. If you drive by every gas station in your town and every single one of them has the pumps roped off, that's a shortage. And so it seemed to be this effort to downplay this thing that really was like a huge problem. It's still a huge problem. Um, And these reporters, for some reason, maybe because they don't want to foment panic, really seem to be trying to downplay the effects of this. Yeah, I guess, I mean, it wouldn't, I don't know. It's just more and more, it is a problem of journalists seeing themselves not just as like having to report the truth, but having some other goals too. And I I worry that they're sort of going to trip over themselves trying to predict how people will respond. It just seems irresponsible. Yeah, totally irresponsible. Um, Okay, so also um, the U.S. Consumer Product and Safety Commission, they tweeted a – they they tweeted a photo of somebody had had like filled plastic bags with gasoline and they were in the trunk of a car and they were like – this was like a warning to people don't fill plastic bags with gasoline. And of course, this went viral and uh, fucking how stupid are people, blah, blah, blah. Turns out the photo was from 2019 and it was taken in Mexico. Did you see that one? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just just small details. Right. So Consumer uh, Product and uh, Safety Commission also needs to learn how to like do some fact checking before (laughs) they spread baseless meme photos of people fucking filling gas up. Um, anyway, so things have not gotten back to normal yet. There's still no, there's still no gas in Asheville. Colonial, it looks like they paid the ransom, um, and they turned the pump, or they, they turned the, I don't know how you switch on a fucking pipeline, um, but they turned it back on. So things should be getting back to normal in the next few days, maybe weeks even. Um, but this is like spreading up, uh, up the East Coast as we speak. So, um, glad I, <laughs> glad I got back to Washington state, uh, before, uh, before we got stuck there. Yeah. Yeah. I am too. It sounds, uh, I'm, you know, I'm in New York City where there's no problems with anything ever. So I can't imagine what that's like, but it sounds unpleasant. Yeah. Sure. Well, you might want to go ahead and, uh, stock up on gas just in case, Jesse. I do. Or learn to- how to siphon. You can watch some uh, YouTube videos about it. I will do that. Later today, I'm driving to Long Island to see some friends I haven't seen in a while, and hopefully I won't be trapped in that um, lawless wilderness out there. Yeah, you should uh, bring an extra pair of underwear just in case. I always do. (laughs) Okay, so this will probably be happening more and more. It's already happened a bunch of times. There's been a bunch of famous and destructive and expensive ransomware attacks over the past 10 years or so. Um, Yesterday, Joe Biden signed an executive order that should, in theory, modernize cybersecurity, at least in the government, and should also encourage the private sector to follow stricter protocols for their own cybersecurity. Um, He also is going to establish a cybersecurity safety review board. um, So that's at least something. But uh, yeah, this is a fucking problem. It looks like the... um, the disruptions of the future are just as likely to come from, you know, cyber attacks as they are from traditional terrorism or, you know, this isn't necessarily going to come from terrorists, but from just straight up criminals. I like the idea of Joe Biden, like appointing himself as the sort of policy head of that effort. (laughs) (laughs) Someone actually had to, yeah, someone had to explain what the internet was first um, before he Uh, could establish the review board. Poor sleepy Joe. Uh, well, I'm sorry you had this harrowing experience. You are you are back safe on your isolated island now. Right? I did I did have to leave vacation three days early. Um, just because you were afraid you wouldn't be able to continue to have access. Wait, what? well, 
it was a, sort of a panic move, but we were afraid that we were going to end up getting stuck there. Um, so it did cost me $500 to re- rebook my flights. But also the other thing was that we were just like, we couldn't go anywhere. Um, so we were going to be stuck inside for like three days. That I, to be, I gotta say from where I sit, uh, with like gasoline fumes everywhere and trash being trapped in, uh, Asheville, North Carolina in mid May. <laughs> being trapped <laughs> on the side of a mountain. Yeah. Yeah. My mom wanted me to help her garden and I don't really feel like it. And so we just, yeah. Oh yeah. God. There was mulch to shovel. <laughs> Uh, anything else on the gas shortage or your harrowing near-death experience? I think that's it. Don't panic buy, people. Don't panic buy. Buy Tesla. Katie, I am fucking furious right now. What's that? What's that about? I am so mad at Liz Brunig. Did you see what she did? Oh, I did see what she did. She leads a happy life. <laughs> Let me preface this by saying that I am a male feminist. We know this. I identify that way. Of course you are. Uh-huh. This whore... <laughs> <laughs> I can't even say this joke either. This was so fucked up. So Liz Brunig, uh, New York Times opinion staffer, uh, until she's moving to the Atlantic. Um, Curious to get the story behind that, which I don't have. I know. She was only at the New York Times for what? Like six months or something? Not very long. Yeah. she's But she's sort of a superstar. She can go where she wants, uh, which might be part of the issue here. But so she wrote a piece, stall for time while I scroll on my phone, stall for time, Katie, say something to distract the people, maybe. Okay. She wrote a piece on may 7th a week ago as i record this um i became a mother at 25 and i'm not sorry i didn't wait and it is just she is a young mother she's like a a, one of the most successful journalists of her age or younger just like crazy successful she's married to matt brunig who's sort of a, a progressive policy wonk type um her article her column there's nothing sort of hectoring about it. She's not telling other people how to live their lives. She's just talking about what it's like to be a young mother in, in a situation and sort of a, a social settings where most people don't become parents until later. She's talking about the trade-offs. She talks about how you think you lose your freedom when you have kids, but she found another type of freedom. I thought it was a thoughtful column, but uh, Twitter, or at least some bad people on Twitter, twatter. <laughs> really disagreed, right? Yeah. So this was basically a Mother's Day column. And the first half of it is, uh, it's an interesting piece. Like the first half is about sort of the difficulties that people face with motherhood today. So there's lots of sort of like, you know, stuff about um, childcare and the cost of living and the cost of raising kids. And it's, and it's got, it's like good information, not, I think, any new information. And so, and then the second half is this, is like a very beautifully written um, sort of, you know, pan. Is that the word pan? Pan? Pan. P-A-E-N. Yeah. Pan. 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 Yeah. Pan. To, yeah, to her child and to motherhood and in the Mother's Day context. So it almost, it almost reads like two different pieces to me. Like the first half is like the, uh, like the vegetables. And the second half is just this sort of like, is the dessert, is this like beautiful piece. Yeah, and and the responses to it were just fucking mind-boggling. I'll just read a few of them. This is uh, Aura Bogato, senior investigative reporter at Reveal and a producer. And my former coworker. Ooh, spicy. I think I knew that. I'm troubled by Noah Smith's. Noah Smith is just this sort of econ writer. I don't know how he even came into this. I'm troubled by Noah Smith's and Elizabeth Bruding's white extinction anxiety which IMO, in my opinion, informs their shared fixations on immigrant, Latina, 
Mexican Motherhood. I wish publications hired Latina critics and opinion writers. For now, everything is about us, yet without us. Uh, saying that Liz Brunig has white extinction anxiety or that Noah Smith, who's very pro-immigration, does is just like it's sort of fucking insane. And we've talked about this before, but the extent to which you can just like get away with sort of lying about fellow journalists and media folks is things have gotten really bad on that. I mean, that that should be like a really serious accusation to level at someone, right? Right. I think she's she's done some amazing reporting. Like she has report, reported on on the the border crisis. She is uh she's she's a, a like real authority on some immigration issues, but she's also extremely fucking woke. So if I'm if I'm like in extreme good faith trying to figure out what the hell she was talking about, I think she was insinuating that this um, angst over low birth rates, which Liz didn't really talk about in the in the sense of of race at all, she was talking about how millennial women are are waiting longer than any other generation in history to have children, is is angst about like white people birth rates, about white people not reproducing. It's an extremely uncharitable reading of the column. Yeah, I mean, I just, I don't know. I think maybe she is an amazing journalist, but to accuse Liz Brunig or Noah Smith of white extinction anxiety is really fucked up. And I'm sort of tired of people just getting away with saying whatever shit they want about people just because it's Twitter. Like, you still you still made that claim. So, uh, okay, here's Amanda Marcotte, a famous feminist. She just, I guess, screen capped the headline. Um, I would like to thank this headline-byline combo for helping me set a record for the quickest, gross pass I've ever uttered in my life. The funniest part is framing 25 like it's some daringly young age. The average age of first childbirth is 26. And uh, Liz talks about this in the piece. As Liz talks, right. So it's like you're choosing to not read the piece and get offended by the headline. If a, a headline's not going to be perfect, but I also, coming from the context of the sorts of people who read and write for the for the Times – you can understand that headline because in our milieu, 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 we can't, we can't, milieu. milieu. <laughs> uh, in our world, that is pretty young to have a kid. I know hardly anyone who had a kid at twenty-five, so I understand. Oh my god! Even like people having kids at thirty, I'm like babies having babies. I skipped immediately from too young to have children to too old to have children. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm headed there myself. Um, so it's just it's just obnoxious. Like it's just it's just a headline. I, I, and then she follow up tweeted. If you want to take on this issue that is smart and is it naked pandering to the fantasies of pathetic men, I recommend at Jill Filipovich's newsletter. Unlike anything Brunig writes, Jill actually respects women. Uh, again, first of all, as Liz pointed out, pandering to the fantasies of pathetic men, is that a fantasy of men? Like for a woman to settle down and have a baby really young? Not not right. Man, I'm right. Aware. So like marry your high school sweetheart, have a basically sleep with one person your entire life. Is that the <laughs> is that the fantasy to be in a totally monogamous relationship from the time you're 18 years old? F- fucking <laughs> Katie, fucking nightmare. Uh, <laughs> but like that just this fucking snotty and unlike anything Brunig writes, Jill actually respects women. I think this comes down to Brunig's views on abortion, which she doesn't write much about. She is a Catholic convert and she takes her Catholicism seriously. But it's just this is why Twitter sucks. Do you do we really think that Liz Brooding just does not respect women, or do you think you two disagree about stuff? Right. Liz, so her politics are interesting. She's a leftist, but she's also, as you mentioned, she's she's Catholic. And uh, one thing, you know, I disagree with her about abortion. I disagree with her on on faith in the sense that I I'm not a believer. Um, but she's 
she's consistent with this. She's, she's, you know, she writes about the death penalty. She's pro-life in every sense of the word. And we might disagree on, on the abortion issue, but at least she is like one of these like good Christians who isn't saying, you know, like, um, you know, abortion should be illegal and also, uh, Children shouldn't get – there should be no social safety net once children are born. Right. Yeah, and a, and a big part of our article was about that lack of a social safety net maybe contributing to people's desire to to not have kids. Um, and she doesn't – I don't think she even – she rarely actually talks about abortion. This is not like her cause. No. I, I think she intentionally stays away from it. But there's a group – so we talked about – in I forget if it was patrons only or the free feed, the sort of – intense woke wars between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton supporters from like back in fucking 2014, 2015. This also goes back to that because Marcotte was on the Hillary Clinton side. Uh, the Bruniggs were on the Sanders side, which brings me to a person whose contributions to this debate make Amanda Marcotte's look positively fair and good faith. <laughs> that is close personal friend, basically uh, our third co-host. You know the name. I know the name. Let's all say it together. Jude Doyle. Sadie Doyle. <laughs> Again, it's his his profile is still at Sadie Doyle. And the mean room- Okay, I want to point this out. So Jude uh, so for people who are maybe coming to this podcast for the first time, Jude Doyle, formerly known as Sadie Doyle, trans guy. No, not non-binary. Non-binary. He's with he or he or they pronouns, I think. Okay, but I think we'd still call call himself a trans guy. No, I got in trouble for that. Oh really? Okay, so trans. So, but goes. Okay, anyway, goes by the name Jude. Has not updated their Twitter handle, which is still Sadie Doyle. I can think of precisely one reason why somebody would keep their dead name, quote dead name, as their Twitter uh, Twitter handle, and that's because if you're verified and you and you change your your Twitter handle, you lose your check mark. Yeah, that's the rumor with with Jude. I want it to be true because it would make him look bad. We don't know for sure, but I, I we don't. But what other what other possible reason? Right, your dead name is supposed to be this thing that can never be uttered. I guess he also does have like multiple books published under that dead name. I, I would say I don't understand why someone who um, has a male name and uses he and they pronouns should be seen as an authority on feminist issues. That's pretty unusual, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> well, no. So hold on. I mean, if if uh, someone who used he pronouns and was named Jude wrote a book about like here's, I don't know. It, it just seems like there's maybe some inconsistency here with like the whole um thing. Yeah. No shit. No shit, Jesse. I mean, it would be very interesting to go back and read Joy- Jude Doyle's books, which are in part about also about motherhood, right? And read them, but you're reading them from the perspective of a male feminist. Yeah. Um, so, and again, I don't know if we can say male feminist. I do know Jude shows Jude as a new name and uses he or they pronouns. So I think, I don't think sure. male feminist is unfair. Like, well, he's also not a male, but man, let's say man, non-binary man. mask. Oh, trans mask fe- feminist. Anyway, here, here are some of Jude Doyle's contributions to the discourse. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing this woman. It was a tremendous personal achievement to be repeatedly knocked up by an internet troll she met in high school. This is incredibly fucking misogynistic. Someone named Jude saying a woman got knocked up by an internet troll. If it was a fucking men's rights activist saying this, it would be a four-day shit show. How, how is this not a horribly misogynistic thing to say? 
Well, did you see Matt Bruning, Liz's uh, husband's response to this? <laughs> yeah, but you have it pulled up. I thought it was really good. White men like Jude seethe in their hatred of women who are more successful than them, especially if in the same industry. Story as old as time. And then, of course, he gets accused of being transphobic, even though he is affirming Jude's identity. But, I mean, this is why it's sort of – it ends up being a little bit bull- – I mean, okay, so Jude will say – I'm not a man. I'm not binary. Jude chose Jude as his name and uses he pronouns to then say it's just it becomes sort of like an identity pretzel where no matter what someone says, you have some way to sort of call them a bigot. But I think Matt's point is totally fair. Well, I mean, Matt is clearly making a fucking hilarious joke. It's totally tongue in cheek, but it's also in this way that's like, oh, you want to be a man? Like you're going to be treated like a man. Yeah. uh, Jude also said – Quoting, quoting Liz Brudig, that's right. I'm an affluent, white, married, straight Christian and a mother. Triggered yet, Libs? That was always going to have shortcomings as a grift. But Christ, you could have chosen a less obviously off-putting dude to build the brand around. Again, it's unclear what could possibly constitute a grift in her column, which was actually laying out a position that among her colleagues is pretty unpopular, having kids young. And then finally, uh, Jude wrote, Oh, weird. A bunch of trad cats, like traditional Catholics, and people who make pronoun jokes have arrived to defend LB, Liz Brunig. I take it back. Everyone is in awe of how she used Christian virtue to restrain the raw animal desires of this smooth-talking ladies' man. Um, and then she includes like a photo of Matt looking goofy. So basically – It's an unflattering photo of Matt. Yeah. What 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 Jude would describe as bullying someone based on their looks. So She's body shaming. I mean, they, they, whatever. I mean, so I feel, I feel bad. We're giving this person's whole, this is a grift where what you do is you say horrifically unfair, unkind things about people, people with platforms, and then their followers defend them. And you describe this as harassment. This is a grift. This really is a grift. And what pisses me off is no matter how many times Jude Doyle says horrific, dishonest stuff, they have lied about both of us. uh, And, in your case, they had to correct it because they wrote it for an outlet. In my case, they didn't. But Jude Doyle continues to get treated seriously by all these major outlets. Just this this unfact-checked show 1A that NPR carries just did a whole thing on the quote-unquote Substack controversy where they treated Jude Doyle as like a serious source. You're for this kidding story. me. No, I'm not. They, 1A had, had fucking Jude Doyle on their show. Well, no, they didn't have Jude Doyle on, but they, they had Daniel Lavery on and they treated Jude Doyle's... They, but, they, but again, it, it's this weird thing where it's like what you say on Twitter doesn't matter. How can... These are, these are horrific tweets. If you or I tweeted this, there would definitely be even more of an attempt to make sure we never get any uh, mainstream platform anywhere why does anyone continue to take this person seriously when he is he he's deranged these are deranged things to say about another human being and it's it's infuriating that like a, a public radio show would be like yep this is a this is a smart honest person whose views we should highlight i don't understand how they get away with it it this is literally a grift to say i hate the broodings i hate the broodings fuck these guys fuck these guys knocked up knocked and then yes their fans are going to defend them and then go oh no help i be i just i can't stand this shit it, it's like middle school did you see the freddie dubauer piece uh this week all of this shit is high school yeah yeah i mean he's that the headline says it all that all this none of this stuff is based on actual like meaningful ideological differences it's just like clicks 
Right. Uh, or it's just, it's personal beef. Um, let me read you a little piece of this part of this because it actually does reference Liz. Is Bruning Derangement Syndrome a, pot, a product of Liz Bruning's unorthodox but not really that controversial politics or that weird high school mean girl shit that rules politics and media? I suspect it's because she's openly religious, not out of rejection of her religious beliefs, but out of breaking 21st century liberal social norms about hiding those religious beliefs. Freddie's whole piece is about this. It's about how the reasons people are shitty to each other online really comes down to these sort of high school politics. And he, break, he brings up my fam- my favorite example, which is the Barry Weiss, Kate McKinnon thing. Do you remember this? Uh, I mean, just that they dated, right? Right. So Barry Weiss and Kate McKinnon dated. They were in a relationship. And this came out on Twitter a couple years ago, and it caused this just like, you could see this just like cognitive dissonance because Barry Weiss, according to left Twitter, is bad, and Kate McKinnon, who sang Hallelujah, dressed as Hillary Clinton, is good, and you can't have the person you like and the person you don't like, not just friends, but actual ex- lovers you can't you can't ship them no no it's just and so and so it's like how do you deal with that how do you deal with the fact that kate mckinnon was like fucking in a relationship with barry weiss and i think they're even still friends um so you know kate mckinnon bad too yeah i uh i've been mostly off twitter in may and watching the the jude doyle stuff in particular made me happy about that this is just like it is a place for very unhappy and broken people or at least media twitter is i guess not all twitters are that bad but i oh i think i think it's Academic Twitter, yeah. YA Twitter, knitting Twitter, cooking Twitter, baseball Twitter, you know, dog Twitter. It's all fucking bad. Yeah. The one – there was one time when I found an online community that seemed positive, like overwhelmingly positive and everybody got along and there didn't seem to be any – angst or drama. And it was the Murderinos. Do you know about Murderinos? <laughs> no, it's a Murderino. Okay. So there's this podcast called My Favorite Murder. And it's these two women who basically like read the Wikipedia entry for a, a murder case. And they explain and one explains it to the other. And it's kind of funny. And they're it's like low, low kind of low production values like this one. And uh, they just talk about murder. And they have the, it's a huge hit. They have this great community. So I was writing a piece about it and about the Murderino fan base. And I started reporting the piece. By the time I finished, there had been a severing. So they had a they had these really incredibly popular Facebook groups where people would talk about the show and then talk about various murders. And they made merch. And in the merch, uh, a shirt, one of their shirts had a picture of a teepee on it. Oh, my God. And- <laughs> Can you guess where I'm going with this? Yeah, genocide. It's genocide. So this was considered problematic. And so, you know, half the people on the in the group were incredibly offended by this. Half the people in the group were offended by people being offended by this. And the group, so I started out writing this piece about the one fan group that I, the one online subculture I found that seemed overwhelmingly positive. And by the time I finished writing the piece, the Facebook group had shut down. Wow. Wow. It's like you're cursed or something. Yeah. It's inevitable. I, I think it's inevitable. I think any, and which is why I'm looking forward to the severing of the Blockton reported fandom too. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna stoke some controversy. It's gonna happen at some point. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, so this shit's inevitable. Um, I think in any online community, or maybe just any subculture at all. Well, uh, y- yeah, but like I do know a fair number of people who have used Twitter for years and not gone insane. I I just think like I do think. Doyle has, as Doyle himself has written, is a genuinely troubled person, but just this fucking oh, that's for sure. Tasmanian, Tasmanian devil routine where you just like do this endless swath of destruction on Twitter. And I, you know, I think people like, 
Jill Filipovich, I think, I think they're like friends. Like, why is nobody just telling Doyle, like, what you're doing is disgusting and is discrediting you? I, I don't understand it. And of course, I'm sure by saying this, like, um, we'll get accused of like inciting another pylon, but, but, you know, mainstream outlets are continuing to take this person seriously and quote him and in some cases to just print his lies. It's bad and, and it should stop. Right. So, I mean, Doyle did get a ton of pushback for this. So it's not like nobody was saying, oh, or it's not like everybody was like, yeah, you're totally right. It's just that that Jude tends to weaponize that to make it, you know, benefit himself. Well, but but literally, I mean, uh, the 1A stuff had probably already been recorded, but Jude's work was was treated seriously by 1A. Jude, there was a whole spate after his really unhinged article um, – about about some of us on Substack, it was taken seriously by numerous outlets who just printed these quotes that that anyway. It, I don't want to get into my own stuff. Well, yeah, because they think that you know Jude good, Jesse bad. Well, not I mean not just it's me, tribal. other people too. But yeah, it's very tribal. And I just think if it if it mainstream outlets weren't still taking this broken person seriously, you could just be like they're just a Twitter rant or leave them alone. But like it's just the 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 standards are crazy low that this person still. Uh, but I'll leave it at that. I, I'm tired of thinking about you, Doyle. I mean, so Liz Burning, in addition to being a fantastic writer, incredibly successful, um, you know, happy mother of two, married to her college boyfriend, uh, seems to spend her time- High school boyfriend, I high school, Yeah, high school boyfriend. Seems to spend her time being a, like, very good homemaker, <laughs> like, like, crafting, like, beautiful, like, fucking, you know- artisanal handmade popsicles for her children um she also has a really good attitude about this shit which is basically like it doesn't fucking matter um and i think she's you know i don't know if she has you you know her personally i've never saw i've never talked to her it would be interesting to know if these pylons which she is frequently the subject of do have an emotional impact on liz or if she truly does sort of just brush it off and say like no there are bigger things in my life to deal with yeah, yeah, I think she has a pretty good attitude about stuff, but I would imagine, um, not speaking from any inside knowledge, but it, it's just when you look at the stuff people say about her and then hold it up against what she's actually read, it's fucking deranged. And and I just I also think like I don't know if you're Amanda Marcotte and you're sort of um, I think she's like a little bit older than me, so so probably a good fifteen years older than Liz. I know they have like long standing beef, but like maybe don't treat other women so shittily and in such bad faith if you're a feminist. That's just a man making a suggestion, <laughs> but I, I don't know. It is like there is this great irony of people of who call themselves feminists re- resorting to these uh, like very sexist attacks on women um, in order to make a point. It- it's sort of, Scott Alexander has gotten in trouble for pointing this out, but among some of those guys, there is this sort of slightly bullying form of um, online feminism. When I was 23 or 24, uh, I don't remember. There's this, there's this clique of sort of online feminists who have been, who have been writing and um, know each other for a long time. Marcotte is one of them. One of them wrote an article that was like, uh, she's straight. She's like, I'm not going to get married until gay people can get married. Thank you. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I wrote a blog post just being like, you know, I think I would have called it performative these days. I was very gentle, diplomatic. Um, I was just like, this. I don't think this really makes sense. It doesn't really have anything. It's not going to help anything, blah, blah, blah. And one of one of her friends publicly says, Jesse is trying to bully her into getting married. 
this is what I, I had. It would be ridiculous today, but like I had no platform back then. I was an absolute nobody. I, I don't remember the exact timeline. I might have written this as an unpaid intern somewhere. This idea that, that because I disagreed with this one act of protest, I was the man is trying to bully the woman into getting married. I mean – uh, some of these guys resort to that stuff a lot, and it's just it it just makes for a very coarse discourse. Well, did you see any legitimate good faith criticisms of Liz's piece? No, but to be frank, I wasn't looking at them. I was just looking at like the dumpster fire responses. I, you know, maybe there maybe there are some, but I I just thought it was such a carefully written piece, and like you said, it had so many just facts and statistics in it. Um, the idea that it, at the very least, the idea that it's outrageous and deserves anger is uh, a little bit unhinged to me. Did did you see anything reasonable? Um, I didn't actually see anything reasonable at all. I mean, I guess like if you're gonna, you know, steal man their criticism or what their criticism should steal have been, person, steal person, steal womanx. Um, you know, there is the idea of or just the whole issue of of childbirth and motherhood is just so loaded that I think. For women who don't have children, this idea or have like have consciously chosen not to have kids or because they don't want them um, or who can't have kids for whatever reason, you know, there's just there can be a lot of uh, a lot of angst wrapped around with that and feeling a lot of pressure. I mean, like I'm a I'm the least maternal person in the fucking world, except when it comes to my dog. And I do get people still like sort of sort of pressure me into having children, which is super fucking weird. Like strangers, even when are you gonna have kids? When are you gonna have? When are you gonna have kids? Like it's oh, it'll make your life so much better. Like does that ever happen to you? Um, some yeah. Actually, oh, does it? Yeah, I mean you're you are supposed to have kids. But, okay, so but this is the divide between um, Liz's world of sort of East Coast media types and America out there. America out there, I'd say if anything, the problems in the other direction. There's tremendous social pressure to have kids, but um. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, it's a it's a very complicated subject, and there's clearly trade offs to going about it both ways. I do the opposite. I, I when I see someone pregnant, I just like really pressure her to have an abortion. Mm-hmm. You just give her like a flyer. <laughs> I say that I just walk up to strangers and I say, "Do you like having an intact rectum?" <laughs> and then I give them a give them a coupon for a tushy. And you're saying, and 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 people say you're not maternal. <laughs> uh, okay, I think we've talked enough about fucking. Oh, God. Uh, these people, they – anyway, Liz Bruning's good people. Sorry this happened to her. I hope you're doing okay, Liz. I'm sure she is. She's just going to like bake a beautiful cake and post it on Twitter and laugh at the haters uh, who are in many cases jealous. Is there anything else you wanted to say about this? No, it is interesting. I mean I wish we, we could quantify this, but how many of these professional beefs are just motivated purely by jealousy? Yep. I think a lot of them are. I'm jealous of Liz for sure. Me too. I mean, I don't want her life because she clearly works hard and uh, has children and is married to a man. But she's she is a she's a voice, um, a rare voice. I'm jealous because I want to give birth to someone, and I know I'll never be able to. We could do a um, we could do a like a, a birthing ceremony if you want. <laughs> Re- try try to create it for you. Patrons only. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening. You can reach us at blockedandreportedpodcast at gmail.com. Our subreddit is reddit.com slash r slash blockedandreported. We are hoping to have news soon on the live event in New York front. It is looking good. Uh, if you think you would attend a live event in New York and you haven't emailed us yet, send us a note just so we have a rough sense of numbers. Uh, we have merch from around the world, uh, blocked reported Native American headdresses. <laughs> Anything else that we need to plug? Oh, buy my book, The Quick Fix, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills. You'd be doing me a favor. 
Anything else, Katie? Yes. We have a Patreon. We have a subscriber-only program. For $5 a month, you can get three extra episodes of this very podcast every single month. We are about to record one that I think is going to be really good and really interesting about Antonio Garcia Martinez, a man who was hired and then quickly fired by Apple. Okay, yeah, sorry we did not get to our um, our special solving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We will bump that to next week, right? Oh, yep, sure. Sorry, forgot about that. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, the only answer to the hummus controversy is that hummus is overrated because baba ganoush is much better. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, never, ever fill a plastic bag with gasoline. Always use reusable cotton tote bags instead. Music